0: Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer.
1: I'm Kenna. I'm Kual. Hiya! Uh...
0: Yes, I just feel like it's way later in the day Mm -hmm. because the time change and all that stuff. And I'm like, I feel like we're rushing, but we're not. You know, it's Mm -hmm. that the time change really messes with your perception. Yeah, it feels like it's time 10 o'clock already. It really does. But we have a and doozy for you all.
1: Yeah. But we want to talk I'm excited. about it. You're so funny because, like, <laughs> this whole week you've been like, oh my god, this is, this case is such a doozy. No. I, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And she's trying not to tell me yeah. anything with all, like, also while giving me hints, but, like, not. It's yeah. It's just, she can't contain it. Kind of can't contain it. She's just, like, she has to tell me, but she can't. Because I, I, <laughs> I live everything internally out loud. <laughs>
0: yeah. But also, I think the reason I'm so excited about this one, and the listeners already know because they clicked on the episode, Mm -hmm. is that I think that you maybe wanted to do it or you were thinking about doing it. I mean, I think it's on your list. I hope it's not the
1: same person I'm doing right now oh, what if <laughs> <That's->
0: oh no. <laughs> no um but i think it's i mean it's definitely a case that you know i'll just say that okay so, but before we get into who it is let's talk about a couple of other things okay. would you like to
1: just give everyone our handles really quick and then i'll talk about the dms and stuff that we've gotten sure you can check us out at diagnosing there you will find links to merch and resources Check us out on any social media platform at diagnosing a killer, other than X, which is at killer diagnosis. X. Email us X. That's so funny. Please email us. Email us. Email us. <laughs> no, seriously, we want to hear from you guys. Well, talk about the the Instagram posts. the yes. Stories. Yes. Oh my gosh.
0: So Such we a good response. Actually, first before that, I okay. would like to talk about a DM that we got on Instagram yeah. recently. And it was from a listener of ours named Aubrey, and she says, Hello! I love that you guys start your messages with that. I love that, that. like, makes my life. Mm-hmm. My name is Aubrey, and I just absolutely love y'all's podcast. I love anything true crime, and I loved how y'all do disorders like ADD, which I have, and it makes me happy that y'all care about it. Y'all make my day every time I listen to y'all, so keep up the good work, and I love y'all so much.
1: Love you. Bye, you Love you. Bye. Yeah, no, love seriously. Me.
0: It's just, it's messages like that that just make me happy to have the listeners that we do, because... Mm-hmm they're really getting the concept of like
1: what we we set out to do right yeah yeah that's exciting
0: and then we did recently i'm sure you guys all remember post a suggestion story asking you guys what you wanted to hear, and we got a lot of great responses, so we made sure to write those down, as well as a couple of responses for mm-hmm. our mental breakdown topic ideas. Mm-hmm. So thank you guys for responding to those. It's it's cases, obviously, that we haven't done yet, but some that I don't even think we've heard of. Right. So I'm really interested to look into those. Yeah. And honestly, like, we always use the mental breakdown as, like, a loophole of sorts. or well, not always, but sometimes. So if there's a case on there that doesn't really fit our dynamic, we can always, like, pepper it into pepper the mental t- breakdown.
1: I know. There's so many people that I'm like, oh, that would be a really interesting case. And then I look into it and I'm like, well, they haven't really been diagnosed with anything or they were found not guilty or... Yeah. So we need to revisit some of those. that Those exactly. were really fun when we do, like, top five or, like, you know, certain examples of certain outcomes of cases so. for sure yeah.
0: absolutely and just lastly before we get into this case we are talking about maybe doing a recap episode at the end of the year about all of the cases that we've covered and maybe any updates if you guys have any updates that you want to talk about or any personal stories about any of the people we've already discussed or even any mental breakdowns we've already discussed mm-hmm. let us know and we yeah. will make sure to p- include that in the episode as well yeah
1: we can definitely revisit those those topics <sighs> okay what are you ready Ugh, I'm scared. It's like a doozy and a half, honestly. Oh, also, people
0: commented about the average length of the episode, like mm. their ideal episode. Mm. We got a lot of about an hour's and an hour and a half Yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This
1: episode's gonna be longer than that.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> I think that. we're we're kind of on the right track because we kind of have every once in a while, maybe, like, a 45-minute episode, and then mm-hmm. we have, like, an hour-and-a-half episode, an hour, and we kind yeah. of, like, go back and forth. So I feel like everyone's kind of getting what they think is their ideal length.
1: Yeah, sure. I definitely have been one of those people that I'll listen to the really long episodes of something, and then they have little 20-minute ones, and I'm like, you know what? I've binged all of the long ones. Yeah. I'm gonna go back and listen to the shorter ones. I could do a 20-minute. I could do just a, a two-hour. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
0: So, thank you guys for all of your feedback. We're gonna really try to be better about reaching out to you guys and and getting your your input because obviously you guys make this show possible. So we really appreciate it. Are you ready? I already said, are you ready earlier? And I'm like, I ready? just
1: like my nerves are shot because I keep. <laughs> You're like, oh wait, yeah, I'm gonna tell you who I am or who I am. <laughs> I'm tell you, tell ladies you and I'm doing. this is me. I'm kind of, I'm Quell. Yeah. yeah. No, that, uh, yeah, just tell me, damn it.
0: Okay, so we're going to be talking about Ed Kemper, a.k.a. the co-ed killer.
1: <gasps> I wanted to do this case! So sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I did, we did, we talked a long time ago about me doing this case. Yeah. Like okay, that. well, I'm very encouraged <laughs> by the fact that it's long, because... No, oh yeah, no, there's a lot of info. And I really don't know a lot about him. Perfect. I just remember him from that Mindhunter show.
0: Yes, he was definitely, like, that's where he got a lot of
1: his yeah. recogn- recognizability. I don't know the word I'm thinking with of. Cameron Britton. And yes. And did so good at him. Because I went back and I looked at side-by-side videos with Cameron Britton and Edmund Kimber. And I was like, oh my god, it's, like, uncanny. Yes. He's so good.
0: I will say, that while this episode is extremely detailed, there's a lot more that you can look at documentary-wise. Mm-hmm. Mindhunter, like you said interview-wise that I didn't put in here, Mm. just for the sake of, like, not having a three-hour fucking episode. Yeah. But, I mean, it's going to be very detailed nonetheless. Okay.
1: I'm excited! Content warning.
0: This episode contains depictions of animal abuse, child neglect, sexual assault, murder including minors, negative ideations of specific groups of people, necrophilia, extremely graphic defamation of a corpse, talk of cannibalism, and suicide. If this episode is not for you, we encourage you to find another one of our episodes. Remember, your mental health is extremely important to us, and we love you.
2: Love you. Bye.
1: Bye. So, yeah. There's that. There's that. This is a doozy of a case for that's non-Patreon. I'm just realizing that.
0: No, yeah. And we definitely want to make sure that we're not just doing the really crazy extreme cases for Mm -hmm. Patreon, because as much as we love our Patreon members, we love all of our listeners. Yeah. And we want everyone to get, like, the graphic content. And especially now that we're doing... The content warning. It's mm-hmm. like, why shouldn't we? You know, yeah, put all that in there. All right. So without further dudes, we're gonna get into this. <laughs> <laughs> further ado. I know what it's actually is. But. Yeah. Right. It's not one of your mispeaks. Yes. Edmund Emile Kemper III was born on December 18th, 1948, in Burbank, California, to parents Clarnell Elizabeth Strandberg Kemper and Edmund Emile Kemper II. Clarnell. Oh, and we'll hear that name a lot throughout this case. In 1943, the Kempers would welcome their first child, Susan Huey, to the world. Huey. Huey. And they would go on to have two more children, Ed in 1948 and Alan Lee in 1951. Allen is A-L-L-Y-N, but she is his sister.
1: Oh, Allen. Oh, okay. His sister. Okay. Yes. Like, Alan. it looks like That's an cute. Allison like Allen. Allie? Yeah, yeah. Allen? Maybe it is Aline. Allen. I don't know. A-L-L-Y-N, right? Allen. Allen? Yeah, I would think Allen.
0: Yeah. Edmund Jr. was a World War II veteran, so the father, and after leaving the war, he worked testing nuclear weapons at the Pacific Proving Grounds. Hmm. When the couple moved to California, Edmund Jr., again, the father, would begin work as an electrician. Hmm. Clarnell was known about often complaining about Edmund's electric, electrician job, calling it, quote, menial, end quote. Edmund Jr. would later state about his wife that, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell.
1: Ooh, damn. So. Well, she's all like a uh, menial, like. It's you're like, just fishing. Also, like, does she work or? Oh, no. Okay, well, of then she not. can just shove it. No, literally. And, like, <laughs> she's the worst. <laughs>
0: so, he would add that Clarinelle had an effect on him that was, quote, more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. End what? Full. So, like, he was saying, like, living his, with her was
1: worse than the war. His wife was worse than the war. Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: There is evidence, and we'll talk about it, that she was also very mentally ill. Okay. When Ed was born, so this is Edmund the third. He came in at a whopping thirteen pounds. <gasps> I'm sorry. No wonder she was a little order. That literally hurts me. So thirteen pounds. That.
2: Oh
1: god.
0: So it was no surprise that he was an entire head taller than his classmates by the time he reached elementary school. He was just a big boy, big kid. I mean, he was six nine in adulthood. Yeah, I'll just say yeah, that. that's true. Clarnell was, by all accounts, a physically and emotionally abusive alcoholic who made quite the negative impact on Ed's life growing up. She was known as locking Ed in the basement alone at night on several occasions as well as a child.
2: What?
0: So most sources said that the thought, like, Clarnell's thought behind locking Ed in the basement was that she thought that he was going to sexually assault his younger sister. I couldn't tell if it was, like, because of something that had happened that maybe suggested he might or it might have just been entirely entirely in her head
1: yeah like a like a delulu of some kind
0: yes it is thought that clarnell possibly suffered from borderline personality disorder but this was never officially diagnosed yeah on top of all of the abuse clarnell was noted also noted excuse me as refusing to coddle ed when he was growing up especially in times of distress fearing that it would quote turn him gay end quote
1: So she couldn't be nurturing because she was afraid that he would be gay.
0: Yeah, like, that's the worst thing in the world.
1: Was she, like, nurturing to the other kids, though?
0: It didn't really say. It kind of seemed like she was cold all the way around, Mm -hmm. but, like, especially to Ed, she's like, oh, if you're upset, like, get away from me. Like, I'm not going to hug you.
1: We can also assume this is likely from Ed's perspective as well, right? Like, these are also going to be from his, like, understanding, right? Like, yeah.
0: So having no emotional connectivity, Ed would turn to unusual behaviors growing up. He would frequently be known to steal his older sister Susan's dolls, like her Barbie dolls mm-hmm. and remove their heads. What? Yeah at what age is this? I mean he was a I mean he's like probably five. under 10 yeah I mean he was young Six, yeah. Ed would comment on this behavior later in his life quote, "I remember there was actually a sexual thrill. You hear that little pop and pull their heads off and hold them up by the hair, whipping their heads off, their bodies sitting there that would get me off, end quote. So Aww. he probably wasn't five, maybe, maybe
1: he was, like, 12 or something. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to know, I, I wouldn't know, I feel like Onset with, alongside, like, sexual abuses earlier than yeah. someone who hasn't, but again, we don't know if that was something that had been perpetrated, yeah. you know, against him, and that maybe that's why his mom was very, like, he has been abused. What's the likelihood of him abusing one of his sisters? Yeah, I mean that. I mean that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, or maybe she knew about the Barbie doll thing, which is I don't know.
0: <sighs> Ed was also noted as borrowing his dad's bayonet and going to his second grade teacher's home. This was after he was obviously out of second grade, so like his <laughs> past yeah, teacher he's walking down the street with right. a bayonet at six. Here, he would watch his teacher through the windows. <gasps> On one occasion, when his sister Susan jokingly asked him why he didn't try to kiss his teacher ever, Ed responded with, quote, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first,
1: end quote. Like, as a kid. Like, he already he already knew, though, that, like, yeah. that was, it was hand in hand. Yes. Like, I she's, like, I don't
0: know if it was this complex at a young age, but I think that the thought behind it, maybe growing up, was, I can't, I can't get that to happen to, like, to me unless someone is, like, against their will. Yeah. Like, it's not something that's going to come easily to me. Right. And it's probably another thing that his mom was, like, constantly, like, feared that he was turning, going to turn gay. She probably said that to him a lot, you know? And maybe that was a a complex, like.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think, so, you're saying that because she kept saying that to him, that he was, like, being intimate with someone must be impossible for me. Yeah, I feel like. it's so out of reach. Kind of. Yeah, Yeah. I
0: mean, I don't know. That's just speculation Mm -hmm. on my part. As an adult, Ed would look back on his childhood and recall that some of his favorite games to play as a kid would be what he called gas chamber and electric chair. Oh, cute. Yeah. He would ask one of his sisters to flip an imaginary switch, and when they did, Ed would either fall on the floor and act as if he was,
1: like, suffocating from the gas or being electrocuted. I bet the neighborhood kids loved to play that game. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it was the hottest new game. So, so popular. Next to Tag, it was the most popular game. exactly.
0: Ed was known as being quite the troublemaker while in grade school, exhibiting antisocial behaviors and cruelty to animals. At the age of 10, Ed had buried one of their pet cats alive (gasps) and then dug it up again, proceeded to decapitate it, and then mounted its head on a spike. Yeah.
1: Whoa. Ed would
0: later admit that around this time, he would find immense pleasure in lying to his parents and family members about being responsible for the death of their family cat.
1: So he he enjoyed lying, saying that he didn't? Yeah, that?
0: like, he, like, liked the secrecy of, like, getting away with, like, this, and yeah. like, no one knew, like, no one was the wiser. Ugh. At the age of 13, Ed had begun to notice another one of the family cats was taking a liking to his sister, Alan. In response to this, Ed would kill this cat as well. He would actually keep pieces of this cat in his closet for a while until his mother would come across them. Nothing happened after that.
1: Okay, nothing. Yeah, she was just like, "Oh, boys will that's, be boys." Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, at least he's not gay. <laughs> oh
0: god, that's terrible. That, that is that's terrible. seriously terrible.
1: But you know, she. I mean, did not that's happen. true. Yeah.
0: It was not clear at what point Ed began feeling that he wanted to harm people. But he was noted as saying in a later interview about when seeing a pretty girl, quote, one side of me says, I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side says, I wonder how her head would look on a stick, end quote. That's...
1: that's Wild? How... Like, how is that not... I don't know. That's just... How do you have two halves of yourself say that? I just don't... It doesn't make sense. It's like, no,
0: here's the thing. He feels that second way all the time, but his moral compass, supposedly, is trying to tell him otherwise. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. It's just like, oh, should I take this route home or this route home? Well, either way, you're gonna get home, right? Yeah, well, (laughs) we'll, and we'll learn that he knows a lot about psychology as well. Yeah, yeah. So he probably was, studied himself a lot. Of course. Hmm.
0: So this is extremely interesting, and I'm really excited to bring this up, because this is the first time ever that I have come across an extremely detailed analysis of an interview of the person that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, while doing my research, I came across an article in which criminal psychologist, her name is Adrian Arno, was analyzing an interview with Ed that was given, of course, later in life. Mm-hmm. This article is written by one Kelly Kreiss, and I'll link the website, of course, in which I found the information in the show notes, but I'm going to include... Every quote that I, was on the website in this episode, because okay. I think it's really important, especially because we're going the psychology angle. Yeah, and
1: it's his own words.
0: Well, it's not quotes from him; it's quotes from Adrian's analysis of I the interview. See.
1: Oh, okay. But I'll
0: kind of say like what Ed was saying in the interview because I didn't watch the interview; I just read mm. the interpretation of yeah. it. Yeah. So I'll kind of say like what he was saying and then what Adrian's response was. Okay. So we're gonna get into the beginning of this interview. Ed explains why he hated his mother, like, growing up, Mm -hmm. but he also states that he tried to love her. Okay. Again, these are really, like, very vague kind of comments, but you'll understand more when Adrian talks, so. Yeah. Adrian's analysis of this part is as follows. Quote, Tragically, we see this a lot in my line of work. A broken and or abusive relationship with the mother creates an environment ripe to grow a serial killer. Ed Kemper's mother hated men. She bred this hate into her children. So Ed, being male-gendered, grew up in a world paradigm where he believed he was bad and never had any intervention to challenge his mother's warped worldview. Mm. Kemper was a ticking time bomb probably by the age of seven or eight, which is the age when we form the foundation of our personalities. It's in our primitive nature to want the love and acceptance of our mothers, both biological and neurologically speaking, but the more Ed tries to win her love, the more he fails the ultimate irony being that in his own actions to punish his toxic mother and rebel against her beliefs about men, he only proved her right. She force-fed child Ed and Paradigm men are terrible, and in his efforts to break free of her prediction, he fully becomes the monster she always said he was, end quote.
1: It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or something. No, yeah,
0: absolutely, but she's so right. Like, he's- trying so hard to please her, and she's shoving him off, and then she's saying, oh, all men are like, Ugh, you know? Yeah. And then she's like, well, you're being like that, you know? Exactly. And then creating a monster, I mean,
1: essentially. They're both proving their their points, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, she's, be- her point is being able to be proven by his behavior, and his point eventually, you know, I'm sure we'll see that it comes out, but yeah. his is that all women are disgusted by him. Of course. And he's always going to he feels like the only way he can obtain it is to take it. Of course.
2: Huh.
0: Without knowing the exact age, all sources point to two near-death experiences that Ed had as a child, both at the hands of his older sister, by the mm-hmm. way. So the first one, his older sister, Susan, pushed him in front of a train. <gasps> And the second one, in which the same sister, Susan, pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. Oh, my gosh. I,
1: so she's probably learning the behavior from the mother. Yeah, And exactly. now he's feeling like, all women hate me, yeah. especially older or, well, I guess, yeah. people. Yeah,
0: And I don't know what's going on with Susan. I didn't really see much more information on those two experiences, yeah. but they were both at the hands of her. Yeah, like I said, I'm sure she's just trying to emulate her mother. And she doesn't have an older male figure to look up to like the younger sister does. Right. Ed. Yeah. Ed was noted in a later interview about his this time in his life, quote, When I was in school, I was called a chronic daydreamer, and I saw a counselor twice during junior high and high school, and that was very routine. They didn't ask me a lot of questions about myself, and that was probably the most violent fantasy time I was off into, end quote. Hmm. So they're trying to, like, essentially just give him advice or just check in on him, yeah, but not asking him what what's actually going on what's, in his head. Yeah,
1: it's just, like, a guidance. It's not necessarily, like, therapy. Yeah.
0: While the relationship he had with his mother was nothing short of tumultuous, Ed was noted as having a really good relationship with his father. Hmm. When his parents separated in 1957 and eventually divorced in 1961, Ed was notably devastated. Following this separation, Ed was sent to live with his mother in Helena, Montana, against his wishes. Among the abuse he was suffering, Clarnell would frequently mock Ed for his size as he stood six feet four inches tall, or 1.93 meters for our non American listeners, by
1: the age of 15. Oh my gosh. That's tall. That's tall. That's very tall. 15. We have, we have tall cousins, though. I, I'm pretty sure the boys were about that tall. And, yeah, and 15, 16, that's true. <laughs> they are playing basketball and football. Yeah, that's um, really interesting that she would hate on him so much, but when the opportunity arose for him to stay with his dad, she didn't allow that. Well, it might have been the dad, too, just being like, I don't want this life or
0: whatever. Yeah. Because he didn't want anything to do with her, right? That's so she's like, you just take the kids. Mm. But also, it's like, I feel like this is kind of... I want to say, like, um, meticulous, like, on the mom's part, because I feel like she's, like, okay, he's, like, much bigger than me. I need
1: to ridicule him so that he still feels smaller, even though physically he is bigger. That's true. And, like, eventually one day, you know, that's, I feel like that might be a scary moment for a lot of parents, you know, when your kid starts getting bigger. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, they're, like, like they're, <laughs> they're than like you. a quarter than my age, and they're like huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, they could beat me up at any moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I find you know also to the point of um, the dad not taking the kids, or at least Ed. You know, this is also in the 1950s where I think a lot of women were expected to raise the children. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, when you divorce the dude, the money and the man are gone, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're left with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> and to fend for yourself.
0: At one point, Ed was eavesdropping on a phone conversation with his mother and father, seemingly wanting to know what his dad was doing. So he's mm-hmm. like, oh, we we're on the phone with dad. But his mom didn't know he was listening. When he overheard his mother refer to him as, quote, a real weirdo, end quote. <laughs> he's so a real he's weirdo. Like, okay. <laughs> In a later interview, regardless of his want to please his mother as a child, Ed would refer to her as a, quote, sick, angry woman, end quote, suggesting mm. that she was mentally ill. Yeah. At the age of 14, Ed would take it upon himself to leave the home in search of his father. When he reconnected with his dad in Van Noyes, I think is how you say it? California. He was shocked to find that his dad had remarried and he now had a stepson. <gasps> Ed would continue to live with his dad and the family for a short while until he was eventually sent to live with his paternal grandparents, Edmund Sr. and Maud Kemper, on the foothills of Sierra Nevada, about two miles west of North Fork, California. Okay. So, his dad's parents, obviously. Ed would describe his time with his grandparents negatively, stating that his grandfather was, quote, senile, end quote, and his grandmother, quote, was constantly emasculating
1: me and my grandfather, end quote. So again, another, another strong woman, woman, or it's perceived to be a strong woman, yeah. strong headed woman, I guess. Of course. Yeah. He
0: would state that his grandmother, quote, thought she had more balls than any man and was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather to prove it, end quote. Oh my gosh. It's like all of, yeah, right, all of the women in his life that yeah. are older than him are like this, like gung ho, like women, you yeah, know, kind with of thing. An iron Fist edward also later stated about his grandmother as well quote i couldn't please her it was like being in jail i became a walking time bomb and i finally blew end quote Ooh. edward explained that before he was sent to live with his grandparents he had taken an extreme liking in learning about firearms he had even obtained a rifle while living with them that his grandfather would purchase for him hmm. with the idea of hunting However, his grandmother did not like the fact that Ed was using the rifle to shoot birds and he would she would quickly confiscate the weapon from him. It's like the only sense of control he actually of feels course. like he has. On August 27th, 1964, a 15-year-old Ed was sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother when the two began arguing. Extremely irritated from the contents of the disagreement, Ed got up from the table and stormed off. Unbeknownst to his grandmother, Ed had gone to retrieve the rifle that had since been taken away from him. Oh my god. Ed would re-enter the kitchen, coming up to his grandmother from behind, and first shoot her in the back of the head. Ed would then fire two more shots into his grandmother's back. According to Ed, his grandmother's final words were, quote, Oh, you'd better not be shooting the birds again, end quote.
2: Mm.
0: Now, the comment of him shooting her in the back of the head is speculation on my part, since he shot her in the back following this,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but the comment may not make sense. Like, how would she know he has a gun? It was literally like, I'm sorry, but, like, her brain was dying. Well, I think that he may have, like, cocked the gun or something that indicated he was holding it. Oh, you're gonna go shoot And she heard that, exactly, and that's probably how she knew he had the gun. Some accounts mention that Maude was also inflicted with several stab wounds, as well as the bullet wounds, but this has never been confirmed.
1: So where's Edmund Sr., the grandfather? He was
0: out grocery shopping at the time. Oh, it was just the two of them. Yes.
1: Shortly after killing his grandmother, Ed's
0: grandfather would come home from the grocery store. Ed would meet his grandfather outside in the driveway with the gun and fatally shoot him as well next (gasps) to his car. He didn't do anything wrong though. After killing both of his grandparents, Ed found himself not knowing where to turn or what to do. He would actually phone his mother and tell her of what he just did. What? Clarnell would advise Ed to call the police, to which he did, and he would await their arrival to take him into custody at the house. I actually think he sat on the front porch. End of the story. Yeah, right. And he was gone forever. It is interesting, though, that he would first phone his mom. Yeah. It's, like, either he wanted that shock factor of, like, look what you made me do, or he's still in his mind, like, seeking her approval.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that it would be, like, he's still wanting that that nurture, right, Mm -hmm. from her, but maybe it is also, like, an omen you know like maybe this is like look this could have been you i did this because of you
0: well the thing is too it's not even her parents it's his dad's parents and he didn't call his dad first which is which is interesting Mm -hmm. police would show up at the home and arrest ed who stated to their question of why that he quote just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma end quote
1: yeah oh yeah that good old that good old nostalgic feeling we all know that feeling yeah that's
0: awful as far as his grandfather's death, Ed stated that he killed his grandfather so that he didn't have to walk into the home and see his wife dead, and also that he knew he would be angry with him for killing her. Yeah. So he's like, you know what, I'm just gonna put him out of his misery, so to speak.
1: So maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it's just not the beef with, like, because it's his dad's parents, because it's, it's more of the beef with the woman. Yeah. And maybe that's why he also didn't call his dad and be like, I shot your mom. Yeah, he's that's probably true. probably like, he loved his dad and wanted to protect his dad, so he doesn't not he's not going to call with that information and that's true, so it makes the whole him not killing his grandfather or not wanting his grandfather to deal with the pain more believable. That's actually really true. I didn't think about it that way.
0: Psychiatrist Donald Lundy would later interview Ed regarding these crimes. He stated quote in his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his father and his mother end quote because mm-hmm. all well, rejection, so to speak, when his father left mm-hmm. After being taken into custody, Ed would undergo a series of psychological tests. He would be subsequently diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, despite his IQ being tested at a 136. Ooh, 136. Very above average. What was Bundy? Oh, God. He was, like, probably
1: about the same. 140? I don't 142? know. 142? I think he was probably about the same. Let's look it up. So Bundy was... You said Kemper was 136? Mm-hmm. So so was Bundy. Oh, interesting. and. Interesting. Dahmer was the one that had a higher IQ at 144. Oh, got it, got it. Dahmer, really? Yeah. Well, got some old meat. I mean, I'm not saying that he or... didn't seem smart. He didn't act smart. <laughs> he just, yeah. <laughs> Did, I guess it's the accent. Yep. Oh Sorrel. God. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get, get so meat, much hate from my right it. freezer. It's like, okay, your IQ is 144. You have rotten meat in your freezer. Get rid yeah. of it. Get rid of it.
0: Throw it away. Throw it away. So Ed would not be sent to jail, but instead to the. At Escadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, a maximum security facility in San Luis Obispo County that houses mentally ill convicts. Whoa! <laughs> it's a long sentence. But because of his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. While there, the California Youth Authority psychiatrists and social workers working with Ed would disagree with the court's findings that Ed was suffering with paranoid schizophrenia. In fact, their report stated that Ed showed, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought. No expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking, end quote.
1: The St. Louis Obispo place, was that, th- I think one of the toolbox killers was actually there, too.
0: We have had multi- multiple people that have been there, and yeah. the, we've talked about, yeah. yeah. Well, because, you know, everything happens in California.
1: Everything happens in California. Yeah. Everybody thinks it's Florida. That's not true.
0: <laughs> so the people at the California Youth Authority used the evidence of Ed's high IQ, and the fact that they observed him to be quote intelligent and introspective end quote as a reason to write him off as not mentally ill okay in turn the psychiatrist would re-diagnose him with a quote personality trait disturbance passive aggressive type hmm like that still sounds like a mental illness (laughs) yeah i I
1: wonder if it's in the i-10 i don't know in the i-9 to look it up yeah
0: Ed would spend the next six years in this facility with his final IQ test scoring an impressive 145. Oh my God. He so like, got smarter while he was in there. <laughs> I just keep getting smarter. Right. <laughs> During his time incarcerated, Ed would impress his psychiatrist by being a model prisoner, and he was even trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. <gasps> okay. Keep that in mind. I was going to okay. say, what a
1: career. One he, psych- then sorry. he just got better and he became a psychologist. Right. I mean, that
0: would be the best story. <laughs> right. One psychiatrist he worked under during this time would later state about Ed, quote, he was a very good worker and this is not a
1: typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work, end quote. I feel like that is a sign of a sociopath. Because you can fake it. <laughs> well, yeah. Or at least some type of, a like, like it said earlier, a personality disorder, like a yeah. narcissism or something that... Yeah, that you have to take, like, a huge, immense amount of pride in your work. But the difference is, is I think, that narcissists think that they're doing better than they actually are. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. in this case, maybe Kemper was actually performing at a really great high level. I mean, she his IQ,
0: you know? Yeah. On top of this, Ed would become a member of the JCs while in oh. Atascadero, and he would claim to have developed, quote, some new tests and some new scales on the Minnesota Multiphasic
1: Personality
0: Inventory, end quote. So I'll talk about that in a second, but the JCs isn't the that BTK?
1: I thought it was William- I thought it was Gacy.
0: One of them, one of them was like a huge Gacy, or a huge, oh yeah, it was Jayce- Gacy, because JC right? Jayce- it was Gacy, Gacy, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Like, mm-hmm. that, not crazy, but just like coincidental, I yeah. guess. So this um, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventor- Inventory is a standardized test of psychopathy and adult personality, So Ed like had claimed to have like helped them like rewrite like new things to like test people on essentially. So he learned a lot. On December eighteenth, nineteen sixty nine, on Ed's twenty first birthday, he would be released on parole from Addiscadero. I can't say that word very well. Happy birthday. Right. While he was eligible for parole at this time, for some reason Ed would be released into the care of his mother, Clarnell, against the <gasps> advice of his psychiatrist. Yeah,
1: please. Just do that. Just
0: send him away to the just person that keep literally re-traumatizing fucking made him. Like this. him. Yeah. yeah. And we always say, like, he was I mean, he was there for six years. Mm-hmm. Like the routine, everything like that, model prisoner regardless of his diagnoses, like, he seemed to have been doing really well. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Not that I could see any, like, inmate violence or anything like that,
1: you know? No, he needed, like, a halfway house or a a reintegration of some kind. Instead of just thrusting him back into the chaos. He needed, like, anything besides his mother. (laughs) (laughs) Literally anything would have been better.
0: Clarnell had since remarried while Ed was incarcerated, changing her last name to Strandberg, which i actually said that last name in her in the beginning and i thought Mm. it was her maiden name but i was wrong so that's her that was her married name after his father Mm. but she had also been divorced twice since ed had seen her last she had been married three times at this point and divorced in six years yes oh my gosh clarnell was working as an administrative assistant at the university of california santa cruz when ed came to live with her Ed would continue to see psychiatrists during his parole period and was actually able to get his juvenile criminal record expunged after progress in treatment on November 29th, 1972.
1: Okay, so it's like, it's still, I mean, he's still moving in a certain positive direction.
0: Yes. The final report from his parole psychiatrist stated, quote, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had had initiative, intelligence, and who was free from any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society." Since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expungement of his juvenile records, end quote. This Which, is, like, breaks my heart, literally because I was just to say
1: that. if I'm he like, didn't cry right go now. back
0: in with his mom, none of this other shit that we're talking about, I mean, it's not the end, you know, we're only fucking 30 minutes in and we have a long way to go. Clearly, this didn't last.
1: That is really fucking sad.
0: Like, really sad. And, like, I'm not like gonna blame everything on Clarnell, but like, she clearly had a huge hand in the way that Ed's psyche developed. And you by know? the
1: time he got out, he was in his
0: 20s. He was 21.
1: So, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not saying that it's not his choice because really, it could be a, the court saying, especially if he's being released yeah. at, from juvenile um, you know, courts or whatever, then, you know, they probably do have to have some kind of a placement for him with a family member. But that's just, like, ugh. Personally, I
0: think, like, because what it seems like to me is that after six years, he was released, he was on parole. After his parole ended, he literally just lost all the treatment. Yeah. I think that, I mean, maybe he was on medication, maybe he wasn't. I didn't see anything, you know, with either side. But, Like, you've been diagnosed with multiple different things. Continue to see someone. Even if you're not... I mean, it's not... I guess it wasn't being paid for anymore because it wasn't part of his, you know, parole. So I don't know if that's the reason,
1: but yeah. Like, literally, like, this guy was like, oh, no, don't see any reason to further treatment. He's cured. But also, it's like,
0: psychiatrists nowadays, I would hope that they know that, like, there's no cure for what he was diagnosed with. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: It's not like you take medication for six months and and you're fine fine for forever. Yeah. Ed would state after his second arrest that the education he got from
0: administering the personality tests during his first stint in prison helped him manipulate his psychiatrist into thinking that he was okay when he most definitely was not. So that's another reason Mm. they probably said,
1: oh, he's fine. He's totally fine. He's convinced me. Mm
0: -hmm. And I'm sorry, as a psychiatrist,
1: you should be able to see through that
0: bullshit. Just saying. Well, I mean... Body language, though body language never lies. But
1: the but the human brain. I mean, you know, it's like we want to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially if we feel like we're helping that person. That's oh, sorry. True. That was odd. You know, they probably felt like they were helping him, and That's they're true. like, "Oh, this is a success. He's cared little did they know."
0: After moving back in with Clarnell, Ed would enroll in community college with the hope of becoming a police officer. What? Yeah. <laughs> right. Random. <laughs> He would quickly realize when looking into employment that he would be unable to join the force, specifically wanting to be a state trooper due to his size, which had now reached a tall 6 feet 9 inches, or 2.06 meters. Gosh. Because of his height, Ed would gain the nickname Big Ed in the community, and although he was not able to join the force, he would maintain close relationships with the Santa Cruz police officers in
1: the area. Sure, that doesn't come back. (laughs) So, from what I could <laughs> gather, it seems as though there
0: was a height requirement to join the force at this time because mm-hmm. they didn't have the necessary equipment for people above, like that above average right. height. It pr- pretty much came down to the resources available, the techniques the officers used, and the ability to get in and out of places like quickly and efficiently. Mm-hmm. Now there's not a requirement or yeah. a height restriction.
1: Didn't Gacy also, wasn't he really in with the cops in the surrounding area? No, yeah, because he was like a
0: politician. Yeah, that's right. Know, yeah. Or he was like in with the politicians. Mm-hmm. At this time, Ed would describe himself as a self-proclaimed, quote, friendly nuisance, end quote, <laughs> and would frequent a bar that was a popular hangout for local police. This was called the Jury Room, which that's I think is funny. kind of clever.
1: that That's my nickname in high school is the Friendly Nuisance. Oh, it was like the Jury Room? <laughs> yeah, the Jury Room. <laughs>
0: I had to pause because I was literally about to cough so the
1: microphone.
0: I'm getting over being sick, but what's new? I feel like the listeners always know that I'm sick. always sick. Always sick. It was reported that Ed had such a good relationship with local law enforcement that one officer gave him a training school badge and handcuffs, (laughs) while another gifted him a gun. Gifted him a gun?
1: Yes. He's like, here, this is for my last job at the forest. Yeah. (laughs) I don't need this anymore. (laughs) Hey, you looking for a gun? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Ed even went as far as to gain a vehicle that resembled a police cruiser. Oh he, like I no. thought he was like in with the crowd. Ugh. oh my God I know. While looking for a career, Ed would work a series of petty jobs, finally gaining employment at the State of California Division of Highways in 1971. Still living with his mother, Ed and Clarnell would be in a constant state of despair, arguing often. These fights would be so frequent and loud that the neighbors in the area would often recognize that they were fighting. Ed would later describe this time of his life, quote, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, boiling and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned, end quote. What? Like, he said that she would just blow up on, like, the
1: dumbest arguments. This dude killed two people and you wanna be argumentative with him? Honestly. I'm sorry. Like I understand that he's done a lot of work. But I feel like maybe she's the type of person that hates seeing him successful. Oh, and i feel happy. Like
0: she, I feel like she's also the kind of bitch to be like, "Fucking hit me. What Why are you going to hit me? What do you fucking hit, hit me?" I scare yeah. Garrett, I feel like that's her. And honestly, that's me sometimes when i <laughs> really drunk i haven't done that in a long time but i have definitely said those words to a man (laughs) a stranger nonetheless stranger nonetheless oh god no, ah. it's not. It's like, don't do that. It's not like don't Listeners, do that. please don't do that. Don't do that. Because sometimes, like, they'll snooky you and you'll fucking get
1: snooky. You. <laughs> oh, God. That is such a reference when and we were talking oh, about millennial stuff. You millennials. millennials, millennials. millennials. You okay. <laughs> like, It's a meme. Ugh. It's just a meme. So, yeah, no, I don't think that she shouldn't. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not here to say that she should or shouldn't be treated a certain way because of what she's doing for sure but i she again strikes me as the kind of person that's like oh so what you're doing well for yourself oh you went to therapy oh you're on medication oh like you're doing so much better like that's she wants to break him all over again is probably what it is so she's probably going at him like three times as hard as she used to
0: fucking sucks dude because like that's his fucking downfall it's yeah ed would eventually earn enough money to move out of his mom's house and would move in with a friend in alameda about an hour and a half drive from aptos where his mother lived those are words i know those those cities even though he had distanced himself physically from his mother ed would frequently complain about how he was unable to get away from her because clarinelle would often call and check in with him and she would also pay him surprise visits like don't do that like just don't don't show up to my fucking house like when i don't
1: want you here Uh, she knows what she's doing she knows exactly what she's doing and she gets gratification out of out of treating him like a piece of shit yeah on top
0: of this ed would quickly find himself in financial stress having to return to his mother's home on multiple occasions when he found himself short on rent oh my god at this point ed was in his early 20s and he would meet a younger girl who was a student at turlock high school By all accounts, this girl was either 17 or 18 at this time, and her name has been redacted from sources. Mm -hmm. The two would quickly get engaged in March of 1973. (laughs) No babies, no marriage. The same year that Ed began working for the state, so again in 1971, he was out riding his motorcycle when he was hit by a car, (gasps) badly injuring his arm. Oh no. He would file a report against the driver, gaining around $15,000 in settlement money. Clarnell... Oh no, I thought you were going to ask me how much it was today. Oh you no, I'm do. sorry.
1: I was waiting for Clarnell to be like, yeah, <laughs> $15,000. <laughs> well,
0: it's the equivalent of around $112,000 today. Oh, that's a lot.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the fumbling around at the end of that it's last like, clip. So I had to leave that in there. That's so funny. It's just a lot of,
1: yeah. Trying to find the, the pot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if. Any listeners that we know personally are listening, which I'm sure you are, I feel like you guys often maybe hear me and Koala when we're out, and we do that
1: voice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is. It's like a creepy old man voice or something. so funny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to the story. With the settlement money, Ed would purchase a 1969 Ford Galaxy. This would be the vehicle that Ed would cruise around in and would begin to notice plenty of young women that were hitchhiking. Hmm. In response to this, Ed would start to stock his car with various items such as plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs. So, a a kit. Oh, yeah, for sure. According to Ed, quote, At first, I picked up girls just to talk to them, just to try to get acquainted with people my own age and try to strike up a friendship, end quote. He would claim that he picked up over 100 girls without incident during this time and (sighs) just gave them a ride.
1: Okay, so, like, same thing with Toy Box Mm-hmm. Killers. Oh, yeah. Like, they literally drove around and practiced picking up girls and legitimately giving them rides mm-hmm. places, but trying out different tactics as to, like, how to get them in the car. Did you say toolbox or toy box? <laughs> toolbox. Yeah. Tool- Killers. Yeah. yeah. Killers. No,
0: but, So I was actually thinking, why couldn't he just be friends with, like, his girlfriend's friends or something? Like, why does he... Like, he's not doing this to make friends, and he claims he's that not. he was.
1: No, he's doing it because he's, he's trying... But that's the thing, is that people, like him and people like the toolbox killers, their end goal is to do kill and do it successfully. Of course. Yeah. And, and do the trial and error. They have the patience, which is creepy. It's so creepy. It's not impulsive. This isn't like, like I just happen to oh grab God, someone I and then I just have to have it. Yeah. No, it's like, I'm going to do the process. Cause if I'm going to do it's like Dexter If I'm going to do yeah. it, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it right. The first time.
0: Okay. Well, Dexter is, he's fine. He can do it every once. <laughs> Bye.
1: I go see Hall. Daddy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless this is when ed would begin having specific urges that he could not explain when picking up these women he would feel that he wanted to do more than just give them a ride and perhaps make a friend ed would refer to these feelings as his quote little zapples end quote and would begin unfortunately acting on these urges little samples. little zapples reminds me of sparky big time
1: yeah sparky big time <laughs> The That's the SBT. SB-T. when you say Wait, SBT SBT and I was like, What's SBT? And you're
2: like, like, b-
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So gross.
1: So gross. Oh god,
0: okay. Between May of nineteen seventy two and April of nineteen seventy three, Ed would kill eight people, six of which were female hitchhikers, giving him the infamous nickname of the co ed killer.
1: No pun intended. Ed oh the co-ed oh oh I got we assume you did there that's um i feel like i want to say that escalated quickly but no like this is literally a culmination of a bunch of shit that we've heard and so far
0: like we just said he's been practicing yeah the best way to to gain trust and to hold the conversation yeah long enough for him to maybe go somewhere else so eight which
1: women. is awful yes
0: Ed would later state that during this time of his killings, he and his mother's arguments would continuously get worse, and the context was mostly about his mother's refusal to introduce Ed to the female students that attended the college where his mother worked. Oh, so she worked at the college? (sighs) Yeah, she was an administrative assistant. I said that earlier. I'm sorry. Yes. That's
1: That's okay. So, but he was like, find me a girlfriend. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not introducing you to any of these women.
0: Yeah. Because you're a sleaze mall.
1: Well, not only that, but she's probably like you can't move on because if you move on with your life, I don't have a verbal punching bag. Exactly. And sometimes a physical punching bag. Mm-hmm.
0: He would later recall about these arguments, quote, she would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them, end quote.
1: That's so gross. That's I hate when people so do that. gross. I know I've said this before on the podcast, I think at least once, but there was a little girl that I used to, like, you know, we were the same age, and her mother used to say, just wait until your father gets home. And I'm like, how Why are you much threatening your child? You're threatening your child about their own parent. Like, oh it's just, God. oh my gosh, that's the worst. So when you said that, it literally just made me go, <gasps> she's going to grow up and
0: be like, or she's going to talk to her friends and be like, oh my gosh, my father's an like, asshole too? Or well, I literally
1: was like, well, what happens when your dad gets home? Because yeah. like, I didn't know because our dad's always... Our dad very, is a saint. Very, very, very privileged to have the father that we do have. Yes. And yeah, it just... It, it, So yeah, when it was like, you're just like your father, it's kind of like, what does that mean? No, seriously. Oh my God.
0: On May 7th, 1972, Ed was driving his Ford Galaxy around in search of female hitchhikers, his usual MO. He came across two 18-year-old co-eds from Fresno State University, Mary Ann Pesky and Anita Mary Lucessa. Ed pulled up to the girls who expressed interest in getting a ride to Stanford University, ed would drive the girls for nearly an hour seemingly gaining their trust or contemplating his next move during this time he had taken a wrong turn that he knew would lead them to a secluded wooded area which he was familiar with due to his work with the highway department but he was actually able to make this quote-unquote wrong turn without the girls knowledge that they weren't headed in the right direction Oh, okay. So I guess he convinced them that they were going to where he was taking them, where they wanted to go.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say. It's like, oh, you made a left, you made a wrong turn. He'll be like, oh, I did? Like, yeah, you can just turn around right there. Or right there. Yeah. Or right there. No, I think he was like, I know
0: this area. This is like a shortcut, maybe, like to Stanford. And he'll
1: be like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I did make a left here, but you know what? I'll just make a left at the next street. Yeah. Oh, wait, this is a dead end. Uh, let me make a right right here. But Ugh, then also it's creepy. like it's not
0: like today where you have Uber and then you have your own map in the back seat, you know. That's whatever. true. After arriving in this area, Ed would pull over and handcuff Mary Ann and subsequently lock Anita in the trunk. Ed would later state that he intended to sexually assault the two girls, but he quote, panicked, end quote. Instead, Ed would then stab Mary Ann and unfortunately strangle her to death. Ed would then turn his attention to Anita, killing her in a similar manner. Ed would later state about these murders that when handcuffing Marianne, he accidentally, quote, brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him, end quote, stating that he said to her, quote, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that, end quote. He would later add that he chose to pick up the two girls because they seemed, quote, of a better class of people than the scroungy, messy, dirty, smelly, hippie types that I wasn't at all interested in. End quote.
1: What? Like, fuck you. Like, what the hell? I think that it's it's so strange. It's so, like, convoluted. It's like, he intended to sexually assault them, but then apologizes for brushing up against her. Exactly. Or like, he says that they're a better class of people, but his intention is to kill them? It's no. It's just so strange. And that's
0: what I'm saying. And, like, it's actually different than what we've covered before. A lot of people do try to abduct people that are maybe transient or not right. as wealthy-looking or not right. as put-together-looking because they because they figure they're... no one's looking for them, right? right? So the fact that he's so arrogant that he's like, oh, I want the good-looking girls that are probably more, like, cleaner
1: yeah, and more I'm well- still going to get away with it, yeah. that's gross. That's just, yeah. That's so. Do you gross. think that he did that with the intention of like wanting it to be news?
0: I actually don't know. That's a good point. Maybe not at this point. Maybe yeah. like later on. Yeah. After both girls were deceased, Ed would put their bodies in the trunk of his car and head back towards his apartment. On the way home, Ed would be pulled over by a police officer for having a tail light out. But somehow, maybe because of his good relationships with police in the area. He was free to go after some basic procedures. And they were with, but they were both in the trunk deceased at this point. Now, remember, Ed is living with a roommate at this point as well. Mm -hmm. Once he arrived home, he found that his roommate was actually not home, so he took the bodies into the apartment one by one. Could you imagine? No, I can't. I literally can't. Ed would then take photos of each corpse before committing necrophilia and dismembering them. Ed would then place the body parts into plastic bags and later dispose of them near Loma Prieta Mountain. Ed was noted as engaging in oral necrophilia with each of the girls' decapitated heads before disposing of them in a ravine close by.
1: That is horrific.
0: Oh, it's disgusting. And beware, I know we already put this in the content warning, but if you look this up, it's, like, much more graphic than that. Yeah. Marianne and Anita's families would report the two girls missing shortly after their disappearances, but nothing would come for multiple months. On August 15th of the same year, Mary Ann's decomposed skull was found in Loma Prieta Mountain. After this was discovered, a search was implemented to also look for the remainders of Mary Ann's remains, and hopefully to find some of Anita's. Unfortunately, nothing else would be found in connection to these girls. Ed was noted as commenting on his mentality about his first murders, quote, If I killed them, you know, they couldn't reject me as a man. It was more or less making a doll out of a human being and carrying out my fantasies with a doll, a living human doll, end quote.
1: So you think he had, like, a doll fetish?
0: I think that he's referring back to his childhood when he, the only real true connection he felt he had was with the dolls because they couldn't right. talk back to him. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just going to do this with people, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Almost like a... That's what I'm saying. Like, it's like would that it be fear like a, kind of thing. Would it be like a blow-up doll guy? I don't think so. You know so. what I mean? I don't think so. You know how they make those, like, realistic ones?
0: I just think, like, as- yeah, I know what you're talking about. I just think that as soon as he, like, got old enough, essentially, like, he was like, oh, I don't have to play with dolls anymore, like, I can just, like, take advantage of women.
1: Yeah. You know? That was kind of, like, a Dahmer thing, too. He wanted, like, what do he say, sex zombies?
0: Yeah, like, that's why he sedated all of his victims. So now we're going to refer back to criminal psychologist Adrian Arno for her perspective on Ed's interview about what escalated him to kill again after being, you know, rehabilitated, apparently. This is all a quote with quotes entwined. Quote, Whether he wants to say it out loud or not, whether he even recognizes it or not, you don't just casually hide a loaded gun in your car unless you know you're going to have a need to use it. This is something I see a lot of in antisocial personalities that have been in treatment for a while. They're okay with admitting to some of their culpability, but only take partial responsibility for their intentions. It gives the illusion of taking responsibility for their crimes, but it's a parlor trick of semantics, particularly intelligent inmates in a long-term treatment learn to use as a defense mechanism. He admits to building up his first, to his first kill with a series of trial runs, quote, a daring kind of a thing, he called it, but a dare is something someone else put you up to or a risk presented you must be brave enough to take it's external. But his, quote, fantastic passion is described as an internal push. What he's really doing is testing his boundaries, seeing how much he can get away with and how easily. Hmm. Furthermore, he knows he shot his grandparents at the age of 15. Now, if you're someone who feels consumed by rage and you've committed two murders before with a gun and been through psychiatric treatment, why in the world would you seek out a gun in the first place? What he's describing is a process of planning. He reports knowing that if he took the gun out while in the car, he'd use it, but in reality, the very act of putting the gun in the car in the first place was the point of no return. Kemper has always presented as incredibly self-aware by comparison to most antisocial personalities. No one can argue he possesses a complex intelligence. Given that we know how self-aware he is, we know there was a part of Kemper that knew, even if it was subconsciously, that he was going to use that gun for a deviant purpose, and it was just a matter of when. He wanted to be ready when the right circumstances presented itself. Putting that gun in his car was as good as putting Marianne Pesky and Anita Lucessa in their graves. End quote. Woo! I
1: know, right? Featured in Vogue, Forbes, and more, Alariz has the most beautiful and expertly crafted diamond jewelry for that special someone in your life. From engagement rings, pendants, and earrings, you're sure to find the perfect gift that expresses exactly how you feel. Click the link in the show notes to receive $10 off all orders plus free shipping. Alarez, fitting all your jewelry needs from A to Z. Especially with the kit, too. He had to have known that he was going to use any of those instruments at any given time.
0: Yes, so I will say... And I'm I'm sure the listeners have recognized, I brought up in this quote the idea of a gun being in the car, and I didn't say that earlier when I was telling you about him putting his kit together. Mm -hmm. We will see that he does put a gun in his car later, but she was referring to the first two murders in that quote, so I Mm -hmm. felt it was right to put it here. Yeah. So, again, I'm sure we can all agree that she's right on the money, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Going further into the interview... Ed continues to explain that he felt as though the first two murders of the girls was a horrible experience and he felt that his hands were tied, so to speak, at certain points. He explains that when he approaches Anita after killing Marianne, he felt the need to not tell her that she was about to be deceased as well. Adrian comments on this, quote, when he said, I just went through a horrible experience, referring to how he had to stab Marianne while Anita was tied up in the trunk and was in shock because of that. That's classic narcissism. He made an active, planned choice to stab a teenage girl to death and was so traumatized by it. Really? This comment strikes me as another very well-concealed attempt to manipulate the listener, a low-key call for sympathy. Mm -hmm. Then he justifies his murder of Luchessa by telling himself, I have to do this, aka I don't have a choice. She's going to tell on me, justifying why he doesn't have a choice. But he did have a choice. A lot of them between even the first time he picked up the roommates in his car and the murders. So this whole "I don't have a choice" is another way to justify knowing it's wrong and doing it anyway. End quote.
1: Yeah, it's like you know, you are essentially saying like I have to clean up after myself. Yeah, like I can't just like I can't just let leave her al- alive. Yeah, I have to clean up the mess. No, it's disgusting, and, sh- and she's so
0: right. She's mm. like. He's making it seem like he didn't have a choice. In reality, the first choice he made was picking them up in the first place. Like mm-hmm. that was that was the choice. Yeah. You put yourself in a position to where you felt like you didn't have a choice because you made the decision right. to go prowling for women. Mm-hmm. According to the next part of the interview, it seems as though Ed comments on having to lie to Anita about the fact that there's blood on his hands. Like he actually actively had blood on his hands. So yeah. when he goes to get her from the trunk, he's like, What am I gonna have to tell her about this? Adrian, quote, why does Kemper lie to Lucessa about what he did to her roommate? Simple, to make Lucessa easier to control than Pesce was. Remember, he just talked about how he went through a horrible experience killing Pesce. He didn't want more of the same antics from her roommate. By telling the terrified Lucessa that there's blood on his hands because her roommate got smart with me, he's making sure fear addled Lucessa goes with him, less of a struggle, and makes it easier for him to kill her. Mm-hmm. Victims in a life or death situation have only two choices try to fight or try to escape. By making it clear to Luchessa that anyone who gets smart with him is going to receive violence, he sent a clear message to her that she can expect violence if she doesn't cooperate. Also, the surprised contempt in his voice when he says, she's, referring to Anita, about to die, why does she need to know that, is apparent. His facial affect remains neutral. His choice of words reveals his self-centered state of mind. What he's actually saying is, why does she even think what she wants to know matters? I'm going to kill her. This is about me and what I want. It inconvenienced him to have to answer Luchessa's question. She interrupted his fantasy, end quote. Gosh, again, like so good. It's so good. And it's, like, everything that I think when I look at an interview or whatever, like, mm-hmm. I'm not as educated as her, clearly. Like, she's a criminal psychologist, licensed and all that stuff but it puts everything that I, like, want to say or want to think, like, into words, and it reminds me of the Behavior Panel. Yeah. And it's it's super
1: interesting. Will you speak on that just for a second, just for the listeners? Sure, yeah. Behavior Panel is a group of four guys. They're FBI profilers, they're body language analysts, linguistics analysts, and, um, like I said, they work for the FBI and the military um, doing interrogation tactics, but they... Look at footage. Most notably, like one of my favorite ones to watch over and over and over again is the Amber Heard one. I know it like like the back of my hand.
0: I've only watched a few, but I have seen the Patsy Ramsey, JonBenet Ramsey's mom interview, and that one was really interesting.
1: The Burke Ramsey one
0: is really interesting. I know I was going to watch that one. (laughs) Oh my
1: gosh! And they so they again they they show clips and then they dissect the clips Mm -hmm. uh, again linguistically. Like their body language and everything like that. um, What speculate uh, on certain at certain times what their background might be based off of what they're experiencing and by what they're watching. And the Amber Heard one is really interesting to me. It is not the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial that we all watched as a nation just (laughs) a few years ago. It's the one a few years before that. I think it was 2015 or 16 Mm -hmm. where. It was, like, in the UK. It was, I think, Sunset Magazine or something. It was another defamation case. Um, this one was lesser known. And her... She's sitting in this room, you know, it's it's very just, like, a, a blank wall behind her. And they're filming her. And it's a deposition. And her lawyers start arguing with these other lawyers. And she just looks to the left, looks to the right. She's, like, chewing gum or something. And she looks bored. And I don't remember who it was either. I want to say it was Chase um, or maybe even Mark. I don't remember. One of the guys says, look at how calm she is. She is so used to discourse. Yeah that she couldn't, like, they might as well be talking about what they're having for dinner, Yeah, you know? And it was just, it was really intense. Anyways, the really awesome guys, the behavior panel, so super interesting. Yeah, so.
0: absolutely. And Adrienne, I mean, hits the nail on the head, like, with every quote. And yeah. we'll hear more from her in a little bit. Again, we're going to tag her in this episode because it's, I feel like she's, this episode is her. Like, mm-hmm. she gives us so much information. Yeah, And it's, it really helps us kind of get to the root of what, again, what we try to do with this podcast, which is mm-hmm. dive into the psychology of the yeah. person. So it's really interesting that we got a lot of information
1: from her on this. It is. And I think that, like you said, it's, it's everything that you think. It's, it's, why do I feel uneasy about this person? Mm-hmm. And then someone comes along and puts it into words so, and like, you're like, I'm educated on that this. Makes sense. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense as right. to why that person makes me feel heebie-jeebie. Ooh, the full buddy heebs. <laughs>
0: On the evening of September 14, 1972, four months and one week after the killings of Marianne and Anita, Ed picked up a 15-year-old dance student by the name of Aiko Ku. Aiko had been at dance class and was planning on taking the bus back home. When she accidentally missed the bus, Aiko decided her next option was to try and hitchhike home. Once in the car, Aiko pointed Ed to the direction of her home, to which he obliged. Ed began driving, but instead of taking her home, he began his journey to another remote area.
1: Whoop, 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 wrong turn. No, yeah.
0: (laughs) Once there, Ed would pull a gun on Aiko. Shortly after this, Ed would exit the vehicle, accidentally leaving his keys in the process and somehow locked himself out of the vehicle.
1: (gasps) She's locked in, though?
0: Yes. Even though the gun was still in the car with her, Aiko would ultimately open the vehicle for Ed most likely trying to follow his orders to avoid any negative altercation. Yeah. Because I'm sure he said that whole thing of, well, don't get smart with me, you know. Unfortunately, Ed had another sinister plan, and he would begin to strangle Aiko to the point of unconsciousness. After she was passed out, Ed would sexually assault Aiko and ultimately kill her. Following her death, Ed would put Aiko's body into the trunk of his car, but instead of immediately returning to his apartment... He decided to stop at a local bar for a drink. With her body in the car? In the trunk. Ed would later admit that once he exited the bar, he would open the trunk in the parking lot, quote, admiring his catch like a fisherman, end quote.
1: That is fucking disgusting.
0: That is so sinister. Like, I can't even.
1: That's what I'm saying. Like, even with the girls where he was like, oh, they were fine specimens yeah. or whatever. Like, he thinks he's playing the most dangerous game or he something. He really is. And he, and he, again, has this grandiose sense of self where he thinks that he's just getting away with everything. It's disgusting.
0: Once back at his apartment, Ed would sexually defile the corpse before dismembering it and disposing of it similarly to his previous two victims. Following her disappearance, Aiko's mother would file a report with the police, even putting up hundreds of flyers in hopes of locating her daughter, but was never given a response on the progress of the missing persons report or any details regarding a search. Just for context, Ed is still consistently hanging out in the jury room bar at this time, chatting and being homies with the local police. (sighs) Criminal psychologist Adrian Arno comments on this part of Ed's later interview when he was describing himself as a normal, trusting person. Quote, "'Kemper's interaction with the police was much like his interactions with mental health authorities. It helped him sustain the high he experienced during the crimes. It's a power trip to be so close to the investigation.' It's exciting to know something he's done is getting so much attention, not to mention how much useful information sociopaths like Kemper can gather to help them continue to elude capture, end quote.
1: So true. So you're right. If he knows where, like, their heads are at, then he's like, oh, I'll be able to... Yeah. He's
0: He's like, so what about this, um, this killer on the loose? (laughs) What do they call him? The the, the, the co-ed killer? Oh, it's co-ed? Yeah. It's the co-edman
1: killer? Oh, I'm sorry. sorry, Co-ed killer. (laughs) What a coincidence. What a coincidence ed
0: was notoriously bad with money and around this time he would lose the ability to continue to pay rent resulting in him moving back with his mother oh great great yeah (laughs) here we go so cute on january 7th 1973 ed was driving around the cabrillo college campus when he came across 18 year old cynthia ann cindy shaw he would drive the girl to a secluded wooded area and fatally shoot her with a 22 caliber pistol Once Cindy was deceased, Ed would bring her body back to his mother's home while she was out of the house. Oh my god. So it's first with the roommate and now same thing with his mother's home.
1: The balls though.
0: Oh yeah. Ed would bring the body into his room and hide it in his closet overnight. Just went to sleep. Just casually.
1: Casually. Yeah. (laughs) Soup's cash. Like she's a load of laundry that Mm -hmm. he hasn't folded yet.
0: When Clarnell left for work the following morning, Ed would take the corpse out of his closet and engage in necrophilia with it. He then removed the bullet from the body before dismembering it in his mother's bathtub. What? So ballsy. Ed would keep the remains together, but would single out the decapitated head, keeping it in his room. Over the next several days, Ed would engage in necrophilic acts with this part of the corpse. After a few days, Ed would bury the head in his mother's garden, intentionally facing it upwards as if it was looking into Clarnell's bedroom. Ed would later state that the reason behind this was because his mother, quote, always wanted people to look up to her, end quote. <gasps> what the
2: fuck? Isn't
0: that fucked up? Bro.
1: Like, this whole thing is fucked up, but that's fucked up. Like, he really hates his mom. Yeah. Like, he really does. Yep. Like... And he's just screaming for her to notice Mm -hmm. this.
0: Psychiatrists and Ed alike would later suggest in interviews that the women Ed killed were taking place of his true wanted target, his mother. Yeah. Ed would speak on this specifically, quote, My victims represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was
1: important to her, and I was destroying it, end quote. Like vanity or, you know, being wanted or desired or pay attention to or whatever and that also kind of goes back to the whole wanting to
0: capture and abduct and and murder women that looked like they were maybe more well off than other women because he wanted something that resembled his mother right and she was fucking prideful probably Mm -hmm. ed would then dispose of the rest of cindy's remains by throwing them over a cliff in a desolate area Over the following few weeks, Cindy's remains would be discovered slowly after washing up shore, I guess there was water nearby, investigators were covering everything but her head. Investigators would state that finding Cindy's remains, quote, pieced together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle, end quote. A pathologist would later determine that Cindy had been dismembered
1: with a power saw. That sounded good. Thank you. (laughs) Stop, I tried so hard to pronounce that. (laughs) Like, well, I've said macabre because that's the because it's French. Yeah, but I guess there's different pronunciations. But that sounded really nice. Thank you. Our French listeners can just let us know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know how I know it's how it's pronounced in every like inflection, inflection, yeah. Infliction? Okay. Yeah. I don't know how to say words anyway. <laughs> Patrons. <laughs> <laughs> On February 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Ed left his home with the intent of finding a new victim. At this time, the media had let out news that there was a suspected active serial killer in the area preying on college women and urged everyone to not accept rides from strangers and also insisted only accept rides from cars with a university sticker on them. Ugh. So what does he do? He gets a university sticker? Ned, however, was able to obtain a university sticker <gasps> oh. due to the fact that his mother worked on a university campus.
1: Oh my God. Okay. All right.
0: While on campus, Ed came across 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen, or Allison Lou. According to Ed, when he approached the two women, Rosalind entered his vehicle first, seemingly willingly, and assured her friend to get in, expressing her belief that it was safe because it had the sticker.
1: Oh my god, I cannot, oh my gosh, that's awful. I can't imagine what that feels like.
0: And it sucks because, like, he thought of that, you know? Ed would quickly shoot both women in the vehicle and would drive off the campus past security at the gates while both women were horribly wounded but still alive. (gasps) Like, how? This guy's so brazen. So ballsy. Ed once again, again, brought his victims back to his mother's house, the two passing away by the time that they had arrived. This time, he would dismember the bodies in his vehicle, decapitating both corpses.
1: That is so much, though. I think his
0: mom was probably home, and that's why he did that.
1: That's, like, a lot, though. Like, that that oh, would yeah. be so... I mean, not so graphic, but that would be really messy. Yeah, I know it would.
0: Ed would later comment on this, quote, "...the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true." There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head, end quote.
1: Oh, my God. So fucking gross. I just, I keep
0: thinking about the Barbies, like, at such a young age, you know? I think so. Ed would dispose of the bodies separately, and in March of the same year, some of their remains would be located, but nothing further. Around the same time frame of Ed's murders, two other serial killers were roaming the area, John Lindley Fraser and Herbert Mullins. The fact that there were multiple serial killers in the same area during this time led the media to dub Santa Cruz the infamous nickname, quote, murder capital of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, classic California, right? Yeah, for sure. During that time. Well, during any of the 70s or 80s.
0: Ed Ed himself would come to be known as the co-ed killer and the co-ed butcher. In the next part of the interview analyzed by Adrian Orno, Ed speaks about the fact that he picked up multiple women who would comment on the murders during their interaction. Ed would state that the women who would mention the killings in the area would get themselves a, quote, free ride, end quote. Oh. Uh, so if you picked anybody up and they mentioned, like, oh, I'm, thanks for picking me up, I I'm felt so unsafe fan. because of... No, not that, but he would say, <laughs> like, even if they brought it up, he'd be like, it's not worth it. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not smart to write on my end. Because then they would have expressed, I don't know. I don't know. Concern? I think that he was
1: more so, like thanks for thinking of me. Like, you get yeah. a pass or whatever. But I'm sure, again, like, he probably justified it in saying, like, well, if they knew about me, they're probably doing their due diligence. Yeah. They're probably, like... Telling people where they're going. Yeah. yeah. Or what? Yeah, exactly. Or maybe witnesses mm-hmm. or have a friend looking out a window to see yeah. what kind of car they're getting into. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Adrian comments on this, quote,
0: This seems to me more like he appreciated the fame his killings brought him. There's a twisted kind of pride in his voice when he speaks about his crimes. It's low-key, but it's there, which isn't entirely unheard of in an antisocial personality. Killing is the one thing that got Kemper what he so desperately wanted from the world, to be seen, to be recognized, to feel powerful. He felt powerless most of his life. I have little doubt that picking and choosing his victims gave him a rush, a chance to play God. There was a power play involved. I don't believe vulnerability had anything to do with it. He already knew he could kill women efficiently. He was controlling most of the variables by the time the potential victim was getting in his car. He'd won her trust, or she wouldn't have gotten in the car at all. He had her isolated, in the car. He had a lethal weapon, the gun, and he'd gotten away with it before, so he knows he's capable. The deck was always stacked in his favor, whether he knew it
1: consciously or not. End quote. Yeah, I think that's very much what Again, it's, like, one of those things, like, I know what I want to say, but she puts it into words so beautifully. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's the attention that he's sought his whole life from his mother. He's getting this, like, like you said, notoriety or local Mm -hmm. fame, and he's just eating it up because people know who he is. Yeah. Even though they
0: don't know who he is. Right. Right. As the interview continues, Ed describes how a specific memory of his father may have inspired him to kill. Adrian, quote, Here we see another emotional moment from Kemper. What he's describing is the classic reenactment of a childhood situation where the offender felt powerless as a helpless child and now seeks to take back the power he lost by repeating the violent behavior of his own offender, Kemper's father. You see this dynamic illustrated far too often in children who commit sex crimes. They're acting out the violation done to them as a way to psychologically distance themselves from feeling like a powerless victim. They achieve this by aligning themselves with the behavior of their own offender, thus making someone else a victim in the same ritualistic way they were made to feel powerless. Only now the victim has become the offender, and the offender is the one with all the power. It's complex, and yet it's a process that we see happening in children as young as four or five. And while it's absolutely heartbreaking, it's important not to forget that Kemper wasn't a five year old who didn't know any better, and his victims were not chickens, they were humans. He was a grown man almost begging to be caught the way his child self likely wished someone would have interceded and stopped his father, end quote.
1: So, are, is she suggesting that the father was sexually abusing him? I think
0: so, but again, I didn't listen to the interview, yeah. and all of the sources that I found didn't really say that, so mm-hmm. I don't want to make that assumption, But based on her interpretation, it kind of seems like he said something along the lines of, or maybe suggesting that.
1: Yeah, because then it would make sense. You know, like, we talked about that at the beginning of the episode, that she, the mom was real concerned that he would be abusing the girls. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's really interesting that it's, uh, he's, he's wanting to be caught much like a five-year-old would expect to be caught. Exactly. Hmm.
0: Furthering the interview, Ed would also try to explain his mindset that he was living in two separate lives at once. Remember he said that earlier about the different, differing lives? Mm -hmm. Adrian comments on this, quote, "'Let's look at this rationally. Kemper comes across as so non-threatening that all these women keep getting into his car. He had tons of opportunities to work on his social skills with women. He's alone, chatting with them over and over again.' But rather than using those experiences as ways to work through his social anxieties, he made the choice over and over again to use them as victim selection runs. Mm. If Kemper had spent half the time he'd spent killing instead of building his up his social skills, he could have gone on some dates, but it would have taken him more courage to risk possible rejection from a woman than it did to kill a woman. End yep. quote. Yeah. Can't reject. That's too <sighs> bad. No, that's a, and that's what he was exactly saying. Yeah. yeah. Ed goes on to explain that he thinks he did not go insane, so to speak, and also he didn't get, quote-unquote, lost while growing up. It seems to be that these were common thoughts among the media after his final arrest. They're like, oh, what went wrong? Like, when
1: did he get lost? Or whatever. Do you think that for him, he was more like, I'm a serial killer, but I happen to have this trauma in my past? Or do you think that he knew verbatim what he was doing and why he was doing it?
0: I think that he... Was in denial about what happened in his childhood, and that's what caused him. I think the first, I think the former is what, like, he doesn't say, with all of his psychological, you know, education and his high IQ, I don't think that he's relating the two. Mm -hmm. I think he's like, yeah, I had a fucked up childhood, but, like, the only reason I'm killing is because of my mom, not because of anything else, Yeah,
1: you know? Like, not fully understanding your own M.O. Exactly. Like, it wouldn't be until after the fact. Yeah, Mm. that's what I was thinking, like, is he like, well, you know, yeah, I had a fucked up childhood, but, you know, I'm past that now, and now I kill people, you know? Yeah, I think that that's kind of what it sounds like, honestly. Like, he thinks that it was, well, maybe it was so repressed that Mm -hmm. it didn't, this is how it manifested, but it wasn't necessarily the work, it wasn't, the work wasn't done until after. And
0: he didn't, exactly, he didn't reflect on it until after he was incarcerated Mm and gave all these interviews. Yeah. Ed did make comments that suggested he was blaming the women that he killed, stating that they were "quote flaunting in my face the fact that they could do any damn thing they wanted and that society is as screwed up as
1: it is." End quote. No, they did not. Yeah. No, they, sorry, Ed. No, no they did absolutely not. not. They weren't flaunting anything in your face. Absolutely, you not. were. You were looking for a problem for sure. Adrian states
0: about this quote: "Kemper is uncommonly self-aware, which is what makes all of his distorted thinking that much more manipulative." He's right. He didn't go insane. The lack of nurture and healthy relationships in his early childhood set the stage for his adulthood behaviors, and then his teenage fantasies wrote the script he acted out. And it's tragic, but at the same time, he's also a man with a high IQ and self-aware enough to recognize he's not insane, which makes him, by the legal definition, sane. He was sane, and he was doing all these things anyway. He wasn't insane, he was angry and fed up, and taking his power back from a world that let him be mistreated as a child, and then let him get away with murder— of his grandparents mm-hmm. when he was in his teens. At heart, Kemper is a troubled, abused child who was throwing murderous tantrums as a way of crying out for help. Help he didn't get as a child and help that came much too late as an incarcerated serial killer to do him or the victims of his crimes any good. End quote. Again, everything we're trying to say, she just <laughs> yeah. puts it in perfect words.
1: I think that what I find most interesting about this case, especially so far, is that he is highly intelligent. We can see that. He's highly self aware. What is he telling us and what is he keeping to himself? Of course. Because he has to be letting these things out, whether it's with the intention of painting a specific picture or if it's with the intention of um, seeming to be more powerful than he was Mm -hmm. or there's, there's some type of a motivator as to why he wants to talk about it. Maybe it is, oh, I can talk about this and it still makes me relative and interesting to people. Yeah. But again, if he, I mean, he has these tendencies and these traits, like, if he's really that highly intelligent, there are things he's keeping to himself. Of course. That and he'll never talk about.
0: And that's what she's saying. It's like, he has all the manipulation tactics that one would need to, like, fool people. Mm-hmm. And they only tell you what they want you to hear. Mm-hmm. And they say things that you immediately interpret it the way that they want you to and not form your own opinion on it. Yeah. And just to put this into perspective... The interview I keep referring back to was given in February of 1984. Okay, just
1: so that everyone knows, that's my son's favorite year right now. Why? I don't know. Like our niece was on the couch and she was playing this lap harp, and he goes, "That's a violin from 1984." And oh I was my like, god, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> it's like, bro, that's a lap harp, not even a violin. <laughs> He's so funny. I don't know why he keeps referencing 1984. Interesting. He said uh, when we were at Dairy Queen yesterday, getting a, his first blizzard. We were walking into the parking lot, and he saw this kind of older Cadillac, and he goes, that's from 1984, and it wasn't. It was, like, from the 90s, but Hmm. it's so funny. 1984 is, like, his year right now. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So, lastly, from the interview for now, Ed begins to explain his approach after the killings of each victim, stating that he would keep mementos in a box that he kept next to his guns. Adrian, quote, this is another example of what Kemper called flaunting that invisibility, invisibility. He was confident he could get away with it. It's further proof of how smart he felt, he was, and how good he was at killing. This idea of being the master manipulator comes into play once again, like a skilled parlor magician. He knew the diversion of his speech and the movement of his hands instinctively draw a person's eye. It's a survival instinct. But like a master magician, he's controlling where the attention of police officers is focused, so they're not looking where he doesn't want them to." Mm. End quote. It's like he's so calculated. Yeah. Yeah. And realistically, like, this sounds really bad, but realistically, I can't help but think, like, he could have gotten away with so many more murders. Oh, yeah. And he was only doing one every couple of months or two every couple of months. Right. On April 20th, 1973, Ed's mother, Clarnell, came home late from a party, waking Ed from sleep in the process. Clarnell went to her bedroom, got herself prepared for bed, and began reading a book. Shortly into her book, Ed would come into Clarnell's bedroom and greet his mother. According to Ed, Clarnell looked at him and stated, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now, end quote. Like, oh, you want to come in and hang out with me? I just got fucking home. You know, yeah. kind of like that attitude. Yeah. Ed would respond to her, quote, no, good night, end quote, and leave the bedroom. Ed did not want to sit up all night and talk, but instead he had another plan. After waiting for Clarnell to fall asleep, Ed would sneak back into her bedroom and bludgeon her with a claw hammer before <gasps> slitting her throat with a pen knife. What? What? a penknife is like a folding knife. Following Clarnell being deceased, Ed would then behead her and, quote, humiliated her corpse, end quote, according to him. So
1: he didn't go into detail about what he did?
0: Ed stated that he, quote, put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, threw darts at it, and smashed her face in, end quote. What the fuck? It's horrible. Oh
1: my god.
0: Following this horrific act, Ed claimed that he then cut out the tongue and larynx and placed them in the garbage disposal, but the disposal was not strong enough to pulverize the tissue, and it ended up back in the sink. Oh my god. Ed would later state that, quote, that seemed appropriate as much as as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, end quote. So, I'm just gonna pause really quick. It's like, he still wants that approval from his mom, but... He waited until she was asleep. He killed her very quickly, yeah, and then he took his time with everything else. I think he's very scared of her, and he always has been, yeah, like he did everything else after he knew that she couldn't retaliate,
1: yeah, and yeah i, I mean, that's one of those things is you know, like like butch defeo, right, butch mm-hmm. defeo junior he you know, kind of the same thing. he was scared of his dad, he hated that his parents fought. He killed his whole family in the middle of the night, but, like, he did it at a relatively young age, Mm -hmm. and I find it really interesting when we come across cases like this where someone is so mad at a a parental figure, but they wait until they're, like, 70, you know? It's very interesting Mm -hmm. that the psychological hold that the parent has over the child is so immense that you still see that person as that, as that dominating figure yeah, that absolutely. you just can't let yourself even in as big as Kemper is and he couldn't huge. he couldn't
0: confront her when she was awake yeah that's why he, wa- he probably walked into a room thinking she passed out because she had been drinking yeah and he was gonna do true. maybe do it then or just check to see if she was, if asleep, she was asleep and then she wasn't and then she okay. made one last comment that he was like I don't like that that's you know <sighs> after this heinous killing Ed would hide what remained of his mother's corpse in a closet and went out to drink at a local bar he would spend some time at the bar, and when he arrived back home, he would phone his mother's friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor, or Sally Hallett, inviting her over for dinner and a movie. Why? Mind you, it's like 4 a.m. at this point. Why would he do that? He had said, I guess, that him and his mom wanted company, they couldn't sleep or something. I didn't see exactly what it was, but this was, like, his mom's, like, best friend. Yeah. Upon her arrival, Ed would strangle Sally to death... Intending <sighs> to create a cover story that the two women had left town together for a vacation,
1: I was gonna say because who who's gonna be sniffing around? Yeah. It's gonna be the best friend. The best friend's gonna be like, "I'm worried about my friend. I haven't heard from her mm-hmm.
0: Ed would place Sally's body in a closet as well and clean up the scene of the home, erasing any sign of a disturbance.
1: Could you imagine being the person at the bar that knows Kimber? Mm-mm. like this guy like no, t- with him. He looks tired every day like he works in a fucking factory or some shit. And he's just killing people all day.
0: And you, you find out that he killed his mom, came to have a drink with you, probably bought you a fucking drink, and then went home and killed someone else. Like, are you fucking kidding me?
1: Like, I just saw that guy. No, I'm totally that guy's alibi. He was there all, no, he I think there. he was there all
0: night. I don't know. What remember. time did he leave, actually? Yeah. <laughs> Ed would then, after cleaning up the house, write a note he intended to leave for police. It stated, quote, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this, quote, horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents, just a lack of time. I got things to do. Three
1: exclamation points. End quote. He's like, hey girlfriends, just to let you know. This is what I've been up to. BRB. Who's all gonna be there? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Referring back to the interview, Ed would describe the moment that he knew he would kill his mother. Adrian analyzes this clip, quote, here's Kemper. He's built up his confidence and ego through his crimes and outwitting police from May of 72 to April of 73, a little less than a year. He's murdered and vented his frustrations on six women in that time. That's not counting his grandparents in 63. And finally, he's got enough confidence to be conscious of what it was all for. It took the murder and defilement of six women to make him feel man enough to finally cut the puppet strings he allowed his mother to continue to pull, Like Pinocchio, he finally felt like a real boy who could exercise deadly agency against his puppet master. But still, he wanted to win. If not her love, at least her submission. He speaks of getting physical with his mother, throwing her on the bed to prove his point. All of these were warnings to her, all cries for her to amend her behavior so he wouldn't have to kill her. Even as he draws closer to killing her, and the only language of power he's learned to speak, he's asking her to stop treating him so poorly. He's asking her to stop so he doesn't have to kill her. It's the mother-child bond, still there, rooted deep in his brain, even though his brain and its neutral functions have been twisted and corrupted, hoping he can spare her, offering her a last chance to spare herself. Of course, she couldn't understand that. Even if she could, it's not likely she would have changed her habits and behaviors. He knew better the whole time but to realize that in the end, every choice he made to destroy his own life and the lives of so many people was all done so he could give his mother the chance to redeem herself. Really, so he could give himself the chance to not have to have his mother's blood on his hands.
1: End quote. It's so true. So true. the, The preparation with him picking chicks up and giving them rides, and it was all preparation for this one moment. But I think he was secretly hoping that his mom would catch him and in between that time say, or someone would oh my
0: gosh i'm so sorry that i made you do this
1: or something that's exactly yeah. what he wanted is that his mom's attention and her to apologize for what she did but at the same time he knows this i'm assuming he knows this this at least this one core thing he's doing this because of her and he puts up with it and he knows he's getting to that point and he knows he's getting to that point yeah. but does he once say it to her nope. no no probably course not, not. Because he's never been like, why do you treat me this way? Why mm-hmm. do you hate me so much? Yeah. Because what can I do? Can I do anything to yeah. appease you? Like what? That's the narcissism.
0: He just... And that's also the antisocial, like, not even recognizing that other people have feelings. And, and it's
1: thoughts. just, I feel like it's this feeling of, like, one day you'll see. Yeah.
0: Ugh. Ed would go on to say in the interview that he knew he was going to kill his mother a week before it happened. <gasps> Ugh. Adrian, quote. We see a slight head nod indicating yes or truth, and then we see that obvious and strong start of the head shake, no. This isn't anything conclusive, but what it suggests to me, based on my experience, is conflict. He tells us he knew he had to kill his mother, but he was conflicted. Is it yes or is it no? Should I nod or should I shake? And still feels conflicted internally about his revelation. To me, with the interrupted footage we have of this moment, I'd begin to wonder if at the time, he honestly felt confident in his decision to finally kill his mother, because some of his body language is indicating he didn't. She continues, quote, "'Notice his Adam's apple when he speaks about knowing his mother has to die. A hard swallow is noticeable. A lot of what we might be able to read around his mouth is obscure due to his facial hair. A hard swallow like this is a non-specific anxiety indicator.' Kemper feels very anxious when he recalls his actions the day he murdered his mother and does a very good job of hiding most of his anxiety. But again, the body will always show you the truth in these little moments if you're looking closely. At time 449, we see his anger evident in the lowering and pulling together of his eyebrows as he recalls his mother lying there reading a paperback. Something about the casualness of just coming home drunk and reading enraged Kemper at the time. In addition to anger, we see a layer of contempt in his face here as well. Note his mid-face tightening a little more on what, on camera, appears to be the left side of his face, but would be his actual right side, resulting in the dilation of his left nostril, a subtly more defined furrow above the brow, and a trace more elevation of his left upper lip on camera. In right, his reality. This is super subtle, and again, his facial hair obscures it, mostly. All of this is the face's way of broadcasting strong feelings of contempt. Then, at approximately 4.51, We see what's called a tight tongue jut. This is a micro expression for we know reveals disdain, disgust, or repulsion of a person or thing. It's the equivalent of the body saying, "You're so repulsive, I want to spit you out." All of the micro expressions we see in this portion of the interview tracks as authentic. Given the footage we have, it appears he's being honest. End quote.
1: So, first of all, love it because again, behavior panel. Yes, the tongue jut. (laughs) If anybody enjoyed that quote, go watch behavior panel. Um, so my, my second point in that, when you were, when you were talking and it, this conflicted thought, right? Like when you were talking about the nodding and the shaking Mm -hmm. and yes, it it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't. And I don't know how I feel about it. It reminds me of when he was saying, or when she was talking about his, his murdering, what was it? Anita? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. When he said, yeah. When he was like, Oh, I just had to, I didn't, I had no other choice. I got pushed to this point, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of that it's like, you know, dude, I, you know, I, I just had to murder my mother. I had to, what am I going to do? Put up with this for forever. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's very much, yes, it was the right thing to do. Did I really want to do it? No. Or I'm at least trying to express that I know it wasn't the right thing to do, but I I had to do it. It's funny because, Because of his knowledge in in psychology,
0: he thinks he knows the correct way to present himself physically, mm-hmm. so that people believe him. Right. But you can't fake those specific emotions that you have, mm-hmm. even if he is antisocial personality. He has emotions internally about his own actions, maybe right. not about other people's feelings or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But you can't fake that bodily, you know, reaction, right? Yeah. So he's thinking, oh, I'm fooling all these people because I'm nodding or I'm shaking my head at the right times, right? But Adrian's like, well, no, because your tongue jutted out and your nostril flared. You know what I mean? Like, it's certain things that you can't control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lastly, Adrian comments one more time about the details of Ed killing his mother. Quote, There's a number of things I notice here. Freeze frame on 436 of video two. Here I see what's called evanescent cheek puff. This micro expression is an indicator of anxiety. You see it most often in circumstances when the subject is skilled at not revealing their true feelings. But unless someone is a true psychopath, the body doesn't lie. End quote. Ugh. Which is why, like, people like Bundy, Bundy like, can yeah. actually do it. Because that is not... I don't care about anyone else's feelings, and I have
1: my own. That's... I don't have feelings. I don't have general. feelings, and I'm able to mimic them in a way yeah, that is that is acceptable. That gave me full body heaves. just saying. Especially with Bundy so able to, like, you, um, like mirror people yeah mm -hmm. and show them their own like physical Mm or behaviors and then yeah and then be able to mimic them and then that person subconsciously feels like oh this person is like me they're listening Yeah. yeah they're listening to me so just a reminder before all
0: those quotes ed had just killed his mother and her friend sally and written that note that he left for police following this ed would flee the scene in sally's vehicle driving straight to pueblo colorado without stopping at this point, he believed he was already the
1: suspect of a manhunt. So he was like, oh, i murdered these two women, and now definitely, am." Um...
0: Because he left the note, right? Oh, that's true. hmm Ed would take caffeine pills to stay awake, not stopping at all for the entire over 1,000-mile drive. A
1: thousand miles?
0: All the while listening to the radio. He believed that if his final murders had been discovered, he would be hearing about it on the radio. Yeah. When he did not hear anything of the sorts, and after arriving in Pueblo... Ed sought out a phone booth and made a phone call to police.
1: I could have predicted that. I literally yeah. was like, he's like, oh, well, nobody's talking about me. He's so narcissistic. Sure people, yeah, yeah. Gotta make sure somebody finds him. But it's also one of those things. It reminds me of Robert Durst with the... Um, Susan Berman when he left the note for the police to find her because he cared about her. Yeah. So still, he cares about his mother enough for them to find her. Yeah,
0: BTK leaving like a random cereal box in a random trunk like a bed of a truck in a parking lot (laughs) and then like running back to the trash can where it was found. And he's like, I have to hide this somewhere else.
1: (laughs) You didn't get my note.
0: (laughs) So Ed would immediately confess to the person on the other line of the phone, the police department, about the murders, but they did not take his call seriously because the police knew the man known as Big Ed as a friend and certainly not capable of murder. They're They're like, like, oh, this is a joke. No way. It's him. Thinking it was a prank, the operator told them to call back at a later time. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just call us back. Sure.
1: Yeah. You know what? Actually, I get up at four. If you could call at 415, that'd be great. Yeah.
0: Well, Ed would take this advice and several hours later, he would call the police station again and ask to speak to an officer that he knew personally. He would confess the same shocking news to this officer who told him to stay where he was and wait. Mm Mm-hmm. Ed would comply, and officers would arrive to take him into custody. In this part of the interview, Ed talks about his contemplation when it came to turning himself in. Hearing this, Adrian states, quote, "...he turned himself in when the story was over. He won the game, and he lost. He won in that he proved his power to his mother, and he lost in that he knows he has a deeply held desire to win his mother's approval and love. It's what has driven him since he was a child, and now what does he have?" Kemper lived so long fueled only by contradictory drives, the first being the drive to have his mother's approval, and the other being the drive to punish his mother for withholding her approval. Without the strings or a puppeteer, Pinocchio's not sure what to do when he's not performing. His entire world paradigm was built on either longing for or raging against his mother. Now that she's gone, he doesn't know who he is or what to do. At first, he didn't want to give up his freedom— but after killing his mother, perhaps he realized the freedom he thought he had was an illusion. He'd always been, and now always will be, a prisoner of his mother's dysfunction. Whether the reason he, tur- Whatever the reason, he turns himself in because he didn't have the will to keep going anymore now that he'd killed her. End quote.
1: Yeah, what do you do? You go start a new chapter? You go find a new antagonist? You're not mad
0: at anybody anymore? They're You're
1: not, not mad. They're not here. You're gonna, what, continue to kill coeds? But the whole point of it was to rage against your mom? Yeah. I don't know. It's weird because like, yes, maybe subconsciously he felt like he was getting back at his mom, but his mom, did his mom ever really know? No, of course not. It's
0: not like he was like, Hey, I murdered eight people and now I'm going to murder you. Like he didn't say that. Yeah.
1: I don't think he did. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of Mark David Chapman too, where it's like this whole, although he was severely schizophrenic or on the schizophrenic spectrum and you know, but his climax was killing John Lennon. Mm -hmm. Then what do you do after that? He was totally fine he's with like, being okay. taken in. He yeah. was reading the catcher in the rye when the police showed up. Yeah, he's
0: like, whatever. You know, my job like, is done.
1: Yeah, my job's done. This is it. I don't need to I don't need to fight anything anymore. Jesus.
0: Yeah. It's true though. Upon being arrested, Ed would verbally confess to six additional murders of female college students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Ed stated, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. End quote. Keep in mind, he hasn't slept in like 48 hours yes, at this yeah, point, too. Yeah, he's high off of caffeine pills. So I'm hearing in this quote, though, that it's his decision. He decided that he was going to be arrested, but he could have gotten away with it if he wanted.
1: Yeah. It's he's like, no,
0: it's my decision because I... I called police and I turned myself in. You wouldn't have caught me.
1: Yeah, it's another exercise of control. Yeah. So remember the 17-year-old girl that he got engaged
0: to in 73? Oh, my God. They were still together at this point. (gasps) This whole time? The engagement lasted over a year, but the girl broke it off when Ed got arrested. Yes! uh. Like, what?
1: (laughs) Wherever you are, bless you, girl. So
0: he got arrested in 73. It's the same year they got engaged, but... They had met in like seventy one. Oh my god! Yeah, I can't even Isn't imagine.
1: It? Right? Could you imagine?
0: So, like I said earlier, like due to her age, the parents requested that her name be kept out of the media, so Absolutely. I, not even there. Which I don't fucking blame them. Even then, I probably changed my name and snow. Honestly, yeah. Ed Kemper would be indicted on eight counts of first degree murder on May seventh, nineteen seventy three. Less than a month after the killings of his mother and Sally, Ed would be assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, Attorney Jim Jackson. Due to the elaborate confession Ed had given authorities, the defense only had one option to advise: plead not guilty by reason of insanity. While in custody and awaiting trial, Ed would attempt to suicide two separate times. Mm-hmm. The trial would begin on October twenty third, nineteen seventy three. Three court-appointed psychiatrists had evaluated Ed prior to the trial and had all found him legally sane. One of these psychiatrists was Dr. Joel Fort. He had investigated Ed's expunged juvenile records, including the one that indicated Ed was psychotic. Dr. Fort also interviewed Ed separately under truth serum and (laughs) indicated to the court during the trial that in his findings, Ed had engaged in cannibalism, cooking parts of his victim's bodies and putting them in a casserole of sorts.
1: He said that or that was under this truth serum? He, he, the doctor said that Ed said that under this
0: truth serum. Although this was his finding, Dr. Ford determined that Ed was fully cognizant in each case of murder, and even added that Ed enjoyed the prospect of infamy that was associated with being labeled as a heinous murderer. Mm -hmm. Ed would later recant this confession that he cannibalized his victims. Okay, yeah, because it didn't really sound like that would be... Rem- like, okay, why? so when I hear Truth Serum, I think of, like, Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story, and he's like, <laughs> I am Mrs. Nesbitt! And he's all like, woo! You know, like, yeah. I feel like that, and I feel like that's kind of like Ed. He's like, yeah, I cannibalized them too! <laughs> or whatever.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is that? I don't know. That's not how he sounds at all. <laughs> no, I know. It sounds like very James Bond, right? Really? Like, you know, you're under a truth serum, Bond, yeah. and within 10 minutes, you'll be dead. You yeah. Know? And he's like, oh, I ate people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, there would be no, there, there would be no where, at least, I mean, we heard the story just now. Yeah. Where would that have come from? Because exactly. everything else is clearly intertwined. I think it was just like a as silly far as know. comment. Yeah. yeah the state of california
0: used the Imnoten standard that stated that for a defendant to quote establish a defense on the ground of insanity it must be clearly proved that at the time of committing the act the party accused was laboring under such defect of reason from disease of mind and not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing or if he did know it that he did not know what he was doing was wrong end quote which he knew he was, but he was doing. Of course. For more information on the insanity defense, I just wanted to pepper this in here. And M. Naughton, listen to our mental breakdown on, on this topic because we did a whole episode mm-hmm. on the insanity plea and all that stuff. The court found that Ed appeared to have known that the nature of his acts were wrong and that he had shown malice aforethought. forethought. Also, I found out while doing this research that it's not malice of forethought, it's malice aforethought. forethought.
1: A forethought.
0: I did not know that. Yeah. And I wrote it out. I was like, oh, I learned something <laughs> new. <laughs> a forethought. On November 1st, Ed was given the option to speak to the court, and he took the stand. He would testify that he killed his victims because he wanted them, quote, for myself, like, possessions, end quote. Like, you're not helping your fucking case here, buddy. I don't think like, he's i just to for myself. case.
1: He's not. He wants to be known as this infamous dude. Of course.
0: He also attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have been committed by only someone that had a skewed mind. He would also suggest that when he was killing, another personality took over, stating it was, quote, kind of, like, blacking out, end quote. So he's acclaiming as DID. I know, and I honestly fucking hate that. Well, multiple personality disorder at this time, but yes. yes. I hate that, though, because it's, like, you're giving, like, everyone that's being diagnosed with DID, like, such a bad, like, cloud over their head. Like, that's not how it fucking works, okay?
1: I was watching a YouTube thing recently where it, it was really strange, and I, definitely did not feel like this person person was purposely doing this. Mm-hmm. There was this guy and I think he killed his girlfriend or something. And he's in this interrogation room and he's like, you talk about like Elliot Roger being a, being a, like an anime villain. Mm-hmm. This guy was so animated and he's like, I did not kill her. And like, would like slam his fist. And it was this bizarre rage where like his body language didn't even match what he was saying. It was so strange. And then, I mean, like, within the course of four to five hours during this interrogation, at a certain point, he starts to, like, calm down. And he's so calm in a way that is not that it's a different person. It was just... And it was so gradual that Mm -hmm. I was like, does this person suffer from DID? Like, it was, like, watching it in real time. And then the whole interview over, like, the course of four or five hours. And it just being so not again, not totally different. It was the same person. You're watching the same person and it didn't look like it was out of exhaustion or yeah. like they were, cause he still wasn't confessing. It was just like, well, you know, and he was just more calm with his delivery. Huh. His, some of his hand, like his hand motions were the same, but it was really strange. Yeah. That is interesting. It was very strange.
0: Well, it's also, I mean, we've talked, we did a whole episode on DID as well. So if you're interested in that, go listen to that episode. Oh but- yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it is very interesting to actually see, like, people that, like, switch, like, during the interviews. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually really, really interesting.
1: But I so, agree with you, him saying, like, oh, it's like I blacked out and I became a different person. That's it's not, like, not. well, do you, did you black out or did you become a different person? Because how yeah. would you know you're a different person if you black out? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> on November 8th,
0: 1973, the jury would deliberate for five hours before declaring Edmund Emil Kemper III sane and guilty on all counts. Ed would request the death penalty, requesting, quote, death by torture, end quote.
1: (laughs) Just torture me to death.
0: However, at the same time, there was a ban on capital punishment in the state of California, and Ed would instead receive seven years to life for each count to be served concurrently. Mm. He would be sent to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. In his early years of prison, Ed was incarcerated in the same block as other infamous killers, such as Herbert Mullen and Charlie Manson. Oh my gosh. Now, we probably all know the story of Charles Manson, but if you're not aware, Herbert Mullen was responsible for killing 13 people in California in the early 1970s, and this was one of the guys that was active at the same time as Ed.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Ed was known as having a specific negative attitude towards Herbert, calling him, quote, just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason, end quote. I'm and like said that
1: about him about Herbert. About, like, oh, okay, so
0: you're not just a cold-blooded fucking killer. No, like, he has a
1: purpose. No, yeah, it's he to confess to things, yeah. but not to that. Yeah, Ed was known to
0: manipulate and physically intimidate Herbert in prison, who stood just five feet nine inches tall, a foot shorter than Ed. Ed would also state about Herbert that he quote had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV. So I threw water on him to shut him up. <laughs> then, when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts herbie liked peanuts <laughs> no he did not that it. was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing that's called behavior modification treatment end quote oh. which is what? fucking cringy like what oh my god. like okay I herbie so likes cool. peanuts is hilarious
1: he likes peanuts but that's called behavior modification treatment he's not wrong he's not like his- god could you imagine if he uses powers for good That's what I'm saying! He could have been an awesome psychiatrist! (laughs) Yeah, could have helped a lot of people. Today, Ed
0: remains in prison among the general population and is considered a model prisoner. In fact, he was even in charge of scheduling other inmates for therapy appointments and has become an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups.
1: (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Like ceramic. Yeah, he realized he had a love for ceramic cuts.
0: Yeah. He would also shock people when he became a prolific narrator of audiobooks for a charity program that prepared material for the visually impaired. Wow. In 1987, a Los Angeles Times article stated that Ed was the coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours of his time narrating books with several hundred completed recordings. That's amazing. Obviously, we know that Ed granted plenty of interviews after he was incarcerated. The last quote I have from criminal psychologist Adrian Arno is following interview footage of Ed considering where he might be today if he had never killed in the first place. Adrian states, quote, What makes me say he knows it's a fantasy is the fact a number of other sociopath serial killers have had normal, mundane family lives as adult men. So it's not impossible to achieve, even with an antisocial personality. It's not impossible to achieve while still actively murdering people. Kemper's intelligent enough to have known he could have had it if he really wanted to. He'd proven to himself and the world that he was a master manipulator capable of psychologically disarming women, even in high-risk circumstances. And yet, without the hope of repairing his relationship with his mother, he didn't see the point in even trying. End quote. FBI profiler John Douglas would describe Ed after interviewing him as, quote, among the brightest, end quote, prison inmates he had ever interviewed. He would add that he even personally liked Ed, referring to him as, quote, "...friendly, open, sensitive, and having a good sense of humor." End quote. Ed was noted as saying at the end of another interview, quote, "...there's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people, and wants to, and rages inside and struggles with those feelings, or is so sure that they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime." doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. End quote. It's like, I have the full body heaps again, because it's like he had the six years in the mental institution, and he was doing miraculously. And now that he's been in prison for so long, he's doing miraculously. It's like, he needed structure his whole life, and he didn't get it. It And all he got was ridicule and blame and whatever from his mom and his dad and I'm not victim blaming but god damn it like fucking put him up for adoption if you're gonna treat
1: him like shit yeah i i think just yeah the incarceration thing i just think back to that juvenile thing i was like oh don't just get his record expunged and yeah you know he killed two people and he's 21 years old but i mean he doesn't even have a felony yeah he can purchase a gun you yeah, know i no, mean it's just true. things like that just kind yeah. of it's very true it's yeah it's just it's hard because again it's like
0: it's it's completely nurture in this this instance i think
1: or the lack thereof
0: yeah ed would first become eligible for parole in 1979 he would be denied parole that year as well as being denied parole hearings in 1980 1981 and 1982 ed would waive his right to a hearing in 1985 in 88 he would attend his next hearing where he was denied as well Following this, Ed would state, quote, society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault them for that, end quote. In 91 and 94, Ed would be denied parole again and waive his right for a hearing in 97, 2002. And in 2007, Ed would attend the hearing once again, being denied.
1: How do you think that feels for him after after having killed these women so that he wouldn't have to be rejected, but yet he keeps going to these parole hearings
0: yeah
1: and he keeps getting
0: rejected prosecutor i think it's adrian simons stated about this hearing quote we don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes end quote yeah i I mean mean, he'll never get out in 2012 ed would waive his right to a hearing once again in 2015 ed would be declared mentally disabled after suffering a stroke and he would retire from the narrations of the audiobooks oh wow in 2016, Ed would receive his first rule violation report ever for failing to provide a urine sample during a routine checkup.
1: You think he didn't know what was going on?
0: Probably. In 2017, Ed would be denied parole yet again. The next time Edmund Emil Kemper III will be eligible for parole will be in
1: 2024. <gasps> I know. 2024. It's like 20. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in a month.
0: So that is the story of Edmund Emil Kemper III. I want to give a huge, huge shout out to Kelly Christ, Ranker's author of the article that we found so much good information on, and an even bigger shout out to Adrienne Arno for her direct quotes that helped literally make this episode possible. I feel like that's the first time I've ever found something that I related to so much and that related to the podcast so much. I was like, I cannot, I didn't skip any of those quotes. Like, I put every single one in there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I did it on purpose because I wanted all of that, like, information yeah. to be there. And thank you for providing that. Honestly, that, that really made this episode that much better, I think. Yeah, for
1: sure. But yeah. Oh, my gosh. I am so grateful I didn't cover this case.
0: Dude, uh, 10,000 words, by the way. Because that whole episode was 10,000. Well, more because we bantered. Yeah. So <laughs> I just said t- more than 10,000 words in That's amazing. the last couple hours. <laughs> and this is um one of our... I mean, this we haven't had a two-hour episode in a long time. Yeah, this is
1: one of our two-hour episodes, especially on a on a, uh, a an a- accessible episode for everyone. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> really excited about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to you guys that answered our poll about the episode ideally being two hours, here you
1: go. Sorry. here it is. <laughs> yes. All three of you. I see you, Tyler, and I see you, Brady. <laughs> I'm the only one that voted for less than thirty minutes. You're As a so joke, funny. I'm hilarious.
0: Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up. Oh,
1: man, it's late. It's it a late, late one. But thank you guys crack for sticking. open a, crack open a whack now. to get a whack now.
0: Well, thank you guys for sticking with us yes. for this episode. If you're still here, we absolutely love you guys and admire your responses and mm-hmm. all the stuff that you send us and reach out to us and all that stuff. And, yeah, we look forward to talking to you next time and hopefully getting some of those requests yeah. finished.
1: Absolutely. If you okay. like what we do, check out our Patreon. Tier 2 and 3 gets extra episodes every month on the 29th. And if you want to support us monetarily, we also have a PayPal. Yes. Which is at Diagnosing a Killer. Yes, I think so. And again, if you guys want to donate, you can also do custom doma- donations as well on the Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys only, you know, you're like, well, I don't want to do $5 a month, you know, uh, but you want to get a- access to those ad-free episodes, you can do a dollar a month, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, custom Customize your donation. Yeah, I think you can even go down to 50 cents a month.
0: Either way, if y'all want to support oh, yeah. us monetarily, please do so. And we sure. really appreciate everyone that has thus far mm-hmm. and continues to support us. In general. Yes. Because we love you guys. And again, this would not be possible without you.
1: The listeners. <laughs> Why do we both just think that? All okay. Right. Ugh. All right. Sign love you, you. Love you. Bye. Bye.
0: Looking to expand your wine knowledge or just indulge in your favorites? Gold Medal Wine Club is what you're looking for. Enjoy small production, award-winning wines from authentic family-owned wineries delivered right to your door. Unlike other Wine of the Month clubs, Gold Medal Wine Club never features private labels or bulk wines. Instead, every shipment is from a unique, family-owned winery, each with a personalized story to tell. Take advantage of multiple different style offers when using the link in our show notes and take home the gold today.